I invite us now to pray together. Lord, it is by your spirit that we live. It is by your spirit that we move and understand our lives in the context of your grace. Now we pray that you would open our eyes and ears and especially our hearts to be touched by your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. The New Testament lesson for today is a teaching by Jesus. It's contained in the Sermon on the Mount. It's from Matthew chapter 5. It's a part of a longer collection of teachings in Matthew. And Jesus says here, Here's another old saying that deserves a second look. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. If someone drags you into court and sues for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. And if someone takes unfair advantage of you, uses the occasion Use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more getting even. Live generously. You're familiar with the old law, love your friend, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer for them as you are working out your true self, your God-created self. This is what God does. He gives God's best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish, to everyone, regardless of whether they are good or bad, nice or nasty. So, If all you do is love the lovable or are a friend to the friendly, do you expect a bonus for that? Anyone can do that. In a word, what I'm saying is, grow up. You're citizens of the kingdom now, so live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives toward you. The way God lives toward you. The word of the Lord. The Old Testament lesson is from the prophet Jonah. In the Old Testament, there were four scrolls of prophets, one for Isaiah, then there was Jeremiah's scroll, and then there was Ezekiel's scroll, and then there was one scroll for the 12 minor prophets. And Jonah was one of these 12. The other 11 were kind of ordinary prophets that we would uh, expect, but Jonah is not a really prophecy, it's a story. It's, it's an ironic comedy story. It's almost slapstick at times. Its main character, Jonah, is a guy who lived 
oh, several hundred years earlier than the story was actually told. So the, the author of the story is picking out a probably historical character, but from long ago. And this, this historical character was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, and he was a very optimistic guy, almost you would say nationalistic. He he predicted the success of the king of his time, Jeroboam II, and the downfall of all of their enemies, especially Assyria. And of course, he was wrong about all of that. But anyway, maybe, maybe that's a part of the purpose for the telling of the story of Jonah. What do you do with a discredited prophet or discredited God? What do you do with unfulfilled prophecy? I'm going to read the story of Jonah, but not all of it, just a few sections of it. And here is the first section. It's from chapter 1. It's how the story begins. One day, long ago, once upon a time, God's word came to Jonah, Amittai's son. Up on your feet and on your way to the big city of Nineveh, Preach to them. They're in a bad way, and I can't ignore it any longer. But Jonah got up and went the other direction to Tarshish, running away from God. He went down to the port of Joppa, found a ship heading for Tarshish. He paid the fare and went on board, joining those going to Tarshish, as far away from God as he could get. But God sent a huge storm on the sea. The waves were towering. The ship was about to break into pieces. The sailors were terrified. They called out in desperation to their gods. They threw everything overboard to lighten the ship. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down below to take a nap. He was sound asleep. The captain came to him and said, What are you doing? Get up! At least... You could pray to your God. Maybe your God will see that we're in trouble and rescue us. We'll stop there. So Jonah is called to this great city, Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, the sworn enemy of Israel. Nineveh, situated on the Tigris River, just across from modern-day Mosul in Iraq. We've all heard of that city from the wars that we fought there. And uh, Nineveh was described uh, quantitatively as a huge place and qualitatively as a great, wealthy, evil, bloody place. It was uh, the capital of Assyria, as I said, but it was a place uh, that w- whose reputation was awful. I don't know what you would compare it to today. What enemy city can you think of that just brings to mind fear or hatred or disgust? That's, that's Nineveh for the Jewish people. And so it's, it's, to, it's by land to the northeast, and what does Jonah do? He gets on a boat and goes to the southwest. He heads to a town, we think, near in Spain, uh, Tarshish. He's heading that way, uh, and uh, as he goes we see that uh, a storm comes up. And uh, he, he, has not, he wants to have nothing to do with Nineveh. You know, he, he's sent to proclaim a message there as if the, the subtext being, 
Assyrian lives matter. What? How could that be? Those people are awful. We know who matters. Jewish lives matter. That's been our story throughout. God acted for us to free us from the Egyptians. God has given us the Torah and our own land. God has given us a day of atonement to be sure that we are forgiven. Throughout all of our history, we are told Jewish lives matter. Jewish lives matter. And now you're saying Assyrian lives matter? I'm heading to Tarshish. And so he goes down. And the movement is ever downward, down to Joppa, down onto the ship, down below decks, and eventually down into the sea and into the belly of a great fish. Now, of course, the hearers of this story were people from the south. And, of course, they would expect, well, those northerners, what would, what would you think? Of course they'd be disobedient. And, uh, you know, of course they wouldn't want to go to uh, Nineveh. That's a terrible place, too. So they're not surprised by this poor behavior by Jonah. He goes down, he's caught in a storm, and the sailors start praying. I mean, they're doing everything they can to save the ship, but at the last analysis, they're, they're in over their heads, so to speak, and so they're praying to their gods, and they ask uh, Jonah to pray to his God. And so we see that the sailors are portrayed in a very decent, human, and humane way. When Jonah says, you know, it's my fault, I'm the reason for this storm, throw me overboard, they don't want to do it. They don't want to kill him. But eventually, Jonah insists, and to save their own lives, they toss him into the ocean, and, uh, and then they pray, as the storm subsides, they pray to Yahweh. And so they assimilate the faith of Jonah into their own faith of, of their other gods. And meanwhile, Jonah has given up his life to save the sailors. And early Christians, of course, saw this as an uh, image of Jesus sacrificing his life for others. And so what happens, of course, is a great fish swallows Jonah. And I always thought of that when I was a child as continuation of the punishment. This is God getting, he, God is so mad at Jonah, he's not only going to drown him, he's going to have a fish eat him. But no, the fish was sent to save Jonah. The whale is an act of deliverance. And so the whale keeps Jonah alive for three days, and Jonah is in there, and, uh, you know, he don't know how he's passing the time. It must have been pretty miserable in there. And the fish is just one of the ways that God is repeatedly trying to convert Jonah's heart. You know, first it was the fish, and then later it was a plant, and then a worm, and then the wind. God keeps sending things into Jonah's way to try to get Jonah to change. And so here ends the first scene, and it ends with this question. Would you rather sit at table with your worst enemy or sit inside a stinking fish? 
That's the question. Would you rather sit at table with your worst enemy or sit inside a stinking fish? That was what faced Noah, I mean Jonah. So here's the second scene, and we're reading from chapter 3. Next, God spoke to Jonah a second time. Get on your feet and on your way to the city of Nineveh. Preach to them. They're in a bad way, and I cannot ignore it any longer. This time, Jonah started off straight for Nineveh, obeying God's orders. Nineveh was a big city, very big. It took three days to walk across it. Jesus entered, uh, Jonah entered the city, went one day's walk, and preached. In 40 days, Nineveh will be smashed. The people of Nineveh listened and trusted God. They proclaimed a citywide fast, dressed in burlap to show their repentance, and everyone, rich and poor, famous and obscure, leaders and followers, repented. Wow. So Jonah is right back where he started. He sent again. He spit out of the whale. He sent again to Nineveh. What has all that disobedience accomplished? If only he had obeyed the first time, then he wouldn't nearly have been drowned. Then he wouldn't have had to spend time inside a fish. Then he wouldn't have risked the sailors' lives. The cargo wouldn't have been lost. The time wasted. But we see that it is impossible to evade God's intentions. It's impossible to outrun God's presence or to nullify God's love. So Jonah does go to Nineveh, but not really in it. He stays on the outskirts, kind of like driving in on I-10, and when you get to that sign that says entering Duval County, you stop there because you don't want to go any farther. And he gives what I would consider the worst sermon ever. It's five words in Hebrews, and it's basically this. What we would, if it were today, it would be, Jesus is coming back. And when he gets here, he's not going to be happy. That's pretty much his message. He didn't want the Ninevites to repent. He hoped they wouldn't. He just assumed God was against them. But guess what? They do repent. Surprise! They all say, God, we've got to change. Even the king pronounces a great fast. And, uh, and so the people amend their ways, and then it says God repents of what God is going to do. Everybody's repenting, except Noah, I mean Jonah. Jonah's the only one that won't. There's a passage in Jeremiah where the, the voice of God says this. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up or break down or destroy it, and then if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will repent of the evil I intended to do it. God repenting? The second scene and the second question, what does it do to your concept of God to entertain the possibility that God may need to repent 
to change God's mind. What does it mean if the word, the prophetic word, is rolled back for the sake of mercy? And now the third and final scene. How does the story end? Here's how it ends. It's chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Jonah was furious. He lost his temper. He yelled at God. God, I knew it. I knew it. When I first got sent here, I knew this was going to happen. When I ran off to Tarshish, that's why I tried to get away, because I knew that your sheer grace and mercy, you would not be easily angered. You would be rich in love, ready to drop at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. So God, if you won't kill them, just kill me. I'm better off gone. Boy, was Jonah messed up. He was so mad. And God said, Jonah, what do you have to be angry about? Give me a break. You've been one of the chosen ones all your life. I've been for you all your life. I've been pouring out my grace upon you. I even called you to speak for me. Give me a break. What are you doing being angry? But it says, Jonah just left the city and went out of town and sat down somewhere to sulk. And the last verse of Jonah is a question, another question. This is God asking, do I not have the right to care about this city of over 120,000 who are like childlike people who don't know their right from their left and who don't know how to live to say nothing of all of their animals? Do I not have the right to care about them? It reminds me of this uh, slogan in eye care, uh, kind of a call response they do in their meetings. The leader will say, who cares? And everybody responds, I care. Who cares about the city, the great city? I care, said God to Jonah. Jonah didn't want to care. And perhaps there are times when God's call to care is beyond our capacity as well. Who cares about things beyond our control, beyond things that are so complex, so controversial? How can we get involved in all of that? How can we fix all of those problems? I've got so much, my own life is such a struggle right now. My hands are full just keeping things going. Who cares? God cares. God cares just as God cares for us. God cares 
for those others who we may even consider our enemies. God is free to repent and save whomever God wants to. And that may threaten my sense of chosenness. But in that affirmation, there is a gift that God is beyond my parochial understanding and my club. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. There is no room today not to care. This is not the time to care only for me. God's people are called to care for the great city, this city that we live in. Care about what is happening to people and proclaiming the good news of forgiveness, even to our enemies. For at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Remember that? Christ died for us and therefore for all. The questions that Jonah leaves us with, I thought about telling you all the answers that I had, but I think it's best that you and I together wrestle with what it means to be sent to places we don't want to go, to be challenged in our image of the freedom of God, and to be partners together in the work of reconciliation, caring for the people that God cares for. Amen.